our focus is looking at shewing or showing, shewing from the King James, by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ, Acts 18 and verse 28. You think about this topic, we look at the Bible, we quickly find an honest heart and a logical mind will find that there are mountains of evidence showing that Christ, without a doubt, is the Son of God, that he walked this earth, that he fulfilled God's will, preaching and teaching before miracles, raised the dead, healed the sick, fed thousands upon thousands. And he came to seek and to save above all that which was lost. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Christ walked the earth. What is interesting is you step outside the Bible, you find the exact same thing, that history bears out that Christ indeed walked the earth. A historian by the name of Josephus, who was not a believer, will attest to the fact that Christ walked to the earth and walked the earth and that he did numerous things while upon the earth. And he mentions at times his, his followers as well. A person who did not believe in Christ as the Son of God admits he walked the earth and did some pretty incredible things. We think about Christ, Jesus being the Christ. We begin first this morning by looking at how Christ is seen in the Old and New Testament. He is seen in the Old and New Testament. We begin by looking first at the Old Testament, looking at, and we're going to look at, there's a whole host of scripture up here. Don't panic, we're not looking at every single one of them, because time will not allow it, as I see our ticker's already going. But we begin by looking at Christ in the Old Testament. We begin realizing that the prophet Isaiah declared that a virgin would conceive, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us, Isaiah 7, verse 14. You know, if you think about that idea, if you think about the amount of detail, you ever thought about the amount of detail that's put into where Christ was born, how he was to be born, where he would grow up? And the detail and the specificness we find in the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. You know, if you want to get away with something, you don't use a lot of detail, do you? No, you avoid it. You try to be as broad about it as possible. That's what false teachers do. And so you be as broad about it as possible so that anything will fit. The Bible doesn't do that. That's why critics, I think in many ways, hate it. You think about, for instance, as we'll talk more into this, but you think about, for instance, the number of times that people have attacked Luke, for, for, for example, his account, which is interesting that critics will attack Luke because he is probably one of the most detailed writers of all, and that's probably why they attack him. You know, not one single time are they successful. And simply find when they walk away from it, they find that he is actually one of the best historians the world has ever seen because he is so accurate. You don't attack Luke. You find, well, you're going to find, but you don't pick, pick, pick him for sure. We think about Christ in the Old Testament. We find, as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, verse, uh, and verse, uh, Isaiah 9 and verse 6, talks about how Isaiah will lay referred to him as mighty God. We find Isaiah 6 and verse 1, that the year that King Uzzah died, that Isaiah said he saw the Lord sitting upon his throne in Isaiah 6. In verse 1, which tells us here in Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzzah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. We find later in verse 5 the phrase, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, there in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. John also wrote about this later in John chapter 12 and verse 41. We also find here, we think about Christ in the Old Testament. We think about how the psalmist suggested that he would be known as zealous for righteousness. In Psalm 69 and verse 9, that he would be hated without cause in Psalm 22, and that he would triumph over death, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. See, the Bible makes it very clear. Christ is very much real. Not was, is very much real. He walked the earth, he died on the cross, rose again three days later, and still lives today reigning the right hand of God. That has not changed. The Bible just bears it out over and over again. We think about Christ in the Old Testament. We know that Daniel refers to his coming kingdom as one that would stand forever in Daniel 2 and verse 44, when he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You know what that's talking about, don't we? We're talking about the church now, aren't we? The church which Christ dies to establish, the church which he purchased with his own blood. The Bible bears that out even back in the Old Testament. We find in the Old Testament that the prophets point paint a picture of Christ not only as as the uh, as a foreshadowing of his coming, but also to make him more visible in the New Testament. You know, if we look at Isaiah 53, which to me is one of the most powerful chapters in the whole Bible, because you can look at it as all that Christ has done for us, all that Christ has done for us, you can look at it as being all the, all about Christ, or you can look at it as being all about us. I think either one can be correct. But you look at all he has done for mankind, and we find it fulfilled in the New Testament, and we still find aspects of it being filled today, don't we? That his blood is still available to those who obey the gospel of Christ. That his blood is still available to those who, who once they become a Christian, when they sin, when they confess and repent, that blood, again, will wash away those sins as they confess and repent. Nothing has changed from being prophesied in the Old Testament, moving to the time period which we live in today. Christ still is there for mankind, literally changing mankind from the inside to the outside, right? You think about that from over here, denomination is talking about accepting Christ in your heart. We realize that's something the Bible talks about. But we do realize that one obeys the gospel, puts on Christ in baptism, becomes a new creature in Christ, our added the body of Christ, which is the church, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that no doubt Christ changes you from the inside out. There is no mistake in that. Christ we also find in the New Testament. Isaiah 53, as I mentioned before, tells of Christ's death for mankind, and Paul repeats this in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Notice the words of Paul in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Doesn't Isaiah 53 bear that out? Absolutely. That's all it talks about. The price of sin and the gift of God. He goes on to say here in Romans 5, 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet for as for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is it important we understand that that the scriptures show that Jesus was the Christ? Because if he wasn't, why are we here today? See, that changes everything, doesn't it? But the scriptures do bear out that Jesus was the Christ. History bears out that Jesus was the Christ. Like it, love it, hate it, it doesn't matter, it's still the truth. It bears out that Christ is the Son of God. Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. And we find in Romans 5, verses 6, 6 through 8, the New Testament over and over will, will fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and what he would do for us and has done for us. The prophets predicted he would be betrayed. They predicted that he would be betrayed by his by a friend, as we find in Psalm 41, verse 9. Think about this for a second. Look at with me just this one verse particularly. Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We expect the world to turn against us, don't we? We don't expect our own. We understand Judas because of his personality and certain traits. He fit the perfect description of a traitor. We understand that, right? But friends, today, is it uncommon for people to turn their backs on you? No. Right? It's not uncommon, is it? No, it's not. But we realize that Christ, despite knowing someone was going to betray him, did deter him from his ultimate goal? No. He didn't waver a single step. Despite all the things in which he endured, he didn't waver one single time. We think about how Christ would be betrayed by a friend and how for 30 pieces of silver would be the price. And both were made true, as you find there in Luke 22 and Matthew 26. That all these things would come to completion, right? 30 pieces of silver. No, really, that's not that much, is it? Pretty sad, isn't it? That kind of reveals a little bit more about, not only fulfillment of the prophecy, we understand that, but also a little bit more about Judas, doesn't it? It didn't take much for him to turn, did it? We think about Christ in the New Testament. We think about the things that the prophets would say. The prophets said that he would be mocked, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. The prophet said that he would be sped upon, Isaiah 50 and verse 6. The prophet said he would be numbered with the criminals, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. The prophet said he would be pierced through, Zechariah 12 and verse 10. The prophet said he would be forsaken, Psalm 22 and verse 1. The prophet said, the prophet said, the prophet said. Well, the prophet said right, because all came to pass. Every single event. Every prophecy, everything spoken of about Christ came to fruition. They were born out in the life of Christ, and some being born out at his death, at his resurrection. And we see those things still today, don't we? We can look back and we can see those things very clearly took place. Christ indeed was one who came, just as the prophet said. Let's think about Christ and his miracles and the resurrection as well, being no doubt one of those miracles. You know, the miracles of Christ 
were intended to prove that he is God. Look at with me there. Think about that idea in John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38. The purpose of his miracles is to show that he was indeed the Son of God. He was God in the flesh, walking the earth, right? John 10, 37 and 38 says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. If you don't believe my words, look what I'm doing. I mean, did my work speak for myself, right? You ever hear the phrase, actions speak louder than words? Well, his, his actions are screaming, I'm the Son of God. You can hate what I say. You can hate how I say it, but he says, my works bear up, I'm the Son of God. Again, like it, love it, or hate it, it's the truth, right? He is the Son of God. Continues to be the Son of God. We also find that same idea there in John 20, 30, and 31. When John the Baptizer sent his followers to learn of Christ there in Matthew 3, notice what Christ said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered when they came to him asking about who he was. Answered and said, Then go and tell John the things that you hear and see. Go tell him what you hear me say and what you see me do. He wasn't afraid, was he? He didn't pull him inside and say, here, this is what you tell him. No, you say, you tell him what you've heard me say publicly, right? That's implied publicly, what you've seen me say in front of everybody. What you've seen me do, right? Go and tell him the things that you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You ever wonder why that is pointed out that the poor have the gospel preached to them? Because some people like preaching to the poor. The poor don't have any money. Right? We preach to the rich because we want to have benefits from the rich. Christ points out he preached to the poor because there are some he would not. He preached to the poor. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He points out there in verse 4 and 5. How the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are dead, and the deaf hear, and the dead, ha dead are raised up, and the poor of the gospel preach to them. Go tell him now what you see and hear. What does that point to? That the Christ is here. The Son of God is here. Peter spoke of the public miracles which Christ had done there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. When he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. What is he telling them? He's saying, you know what he's done. You know the miracles he has done in front of your eyes and what they attest to, don't they? You know what this means. See, some people can have the truth in front of them, but just ignore it. I know that's shocking to hear, but people ignore the truth sometimes, right? And we find here with Christ and Peter speaking concerning the things he had done, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. Thus they are what? Without Excuse. Right? 
without excuse. No, in all reality, we understand full well today that mankind is still without excuse. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Christ or the Son, you don't obey the gospel, there's no excuse for that. There's no justifiable reason to say, well, I had this reason for not believing. That doesn't work. You know, mankind likes to get real emotional about their salvation sometimes and say, well, you know, I'm a good person according to who? Right? We've all been to those funerals, right, where it gets real awkward and someone gets up and says some things about someone who you know full well because you've seen with your eyes and heard with your ears that that's not a very good person at all. And they're preached by some denominational preacher right into heaven. You know, God is not fooled. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he also will reap, right? And we find here in Acts chapter 2, that's what Peter is telling them. Look, you've seen it with your eyes. You've heard it with your ears. You know who this man is. Even the critics of Christ had to face the truth of the miracles he performed. John 3 and verse 2. Notice what they say here in John 3 and verse 2. The man this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. It's a pretty big statement, isn't it? We know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. That fits right along with what Peter said a moment ago, doesn't it? In Acts 2. He did these things in front of them, and he must be the Christ. It is all pointing to him being the Son of God, the Christ who walked the earth. He is and continues to be the Son of God. We think about the resurrection. The resurrection. Jesus predicted, or excuse me, just as Christ predicted, rather, that, uh, just as predicted, Christ rose up from the tomb three days after his crucifixion. We found there in Matthew 16, 27 and 28, right? He, he portrayed and talked about his death numerous times, how he would be betrayed by man, how he'd be taken off and be taken to judgment. If you want to call it that, it wasn't much of a judgment, was it? And then he'd be placed on the cross after that scourging. And he would rise Three days later, even the soldiers who knew of Christ's resurrection had to be bribed as they too knew the truth of the resurrection. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Think for yourself, did we ever run into situations like this today where people are kind of bribed to say certain things? You know, this was hit on a little bit before by Brother Tom when we talked about those who are hirelings and those who don't want to preach the truth. Those are just there for a paycheck. Friends, there are easier ways to get a paycheck in preaching. If that's all you're after, go do something else. If you want to preach the truth, and this is what you need to be doing. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Beginning there in verse 11, he says, Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell, tell them... His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. What's the problem with that and the Roman soldiers sleeping? What would happen if that actually had happened? They went and said, look, they stole his body while we were asleep. You're dead. That's why we find that next phrase there in Matthew 28, when he says, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will, we will appease him and make you secure. 
So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And what happened, that account was repeated over and over and over. Because if you hear a lie enough, some people think it's the truth, don't they? Over and over again. We think about some post-resurrection appearances. Just as predicted, Christ, we know, rose from the dead, but we also know that Christ appeared after his resurrection. He didn't simply rise from the grave from the tomb and go into heaven. No, people saw him. We know, for example, that the soldiers who guarded the tomb saw him in Matthew 28, 1-4, right? The Bible says they became like dead men because they saw someone who, in all reality, should have been dead. There's no reason for Christ to suddenly come out of the tomb unless he's more than just a mere man. Unless he's something more. See, we have those today who want to critics who want to talk about, well, Christ fainted on the cross and he wasn't really dead. Well, he was quite the actor then, wasn't he? Because the Roman guards were really good at knowing that someone was dead. There was no chance he's coming down that cross alive. Why did, they, why did they not break his legs? He was already dead. They knew that. These are some of the same men who were involved in the scourging prior to him going to the cross. We know about the scourging, don't we? Well, they didn't have to abide by the 40 strike rule. No, they could swing their arm until their arm got too tired. They could just trade off if they wanted to. They knew when he was going to be dead. That's why they stopped before they took him to the cross because they didn't want him to die during the scourging. Because then they'd be in trouble. When they pierced his side and saw that he was dead, they knew for sure. That's why the soldiers, when they saw him come out of the tomb, they couldn't move. They knew he was dead. No one comes off the cross alive. Not at that time, not for Christ. They weren't allowed that to happen. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And looking at verses 4 through 8 here, we find that the women who came to the tomb, the 11 apostles, and more than 500 other witnesses, saw Christ. Let's go to the big one. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning there in verse 4. And that he was buried, as in the Apostle Paul speaking, that he rose again the third day according to the, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, referencing the Apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Five, there's only 500 people here today. 500 people at once tells you the massive amount of people who saw him at one single time. Notice what else the Apostle Paul points out here. Of whom the greater part remain to the present. I mean, there are some who are alive in the time that Paul was talking about this. They saw that, you can go and ask him. That's why he says that. He says, yes, some have passed away, but the greater part is still alive. And they saw him in the flesh. After the tomb. They saw a man that should have been dead face to face. The Bible tells us there, continuing on there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, after that he was seen by James, then by, the, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, and I saw Christ also. Friends, how much evidence do we truly need? Truly we understand Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He walked the earth. He fulfilled all those prophecies of the Old Testament. Few remaining to be fulfilled at the second coming, right? 
And Christ will take us to judgment and then the faithful to the heavenly home. And we all go that place together. Not before one, one before another, but together. The scripture bears this out clearly. We think about some lessons for us from this today. The biblical evidence for Christ abounds. It abounds as we found there in Acts 18 verse 28. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Showing from the scriptures, Jesus is the Christ. The Old Testament prophets point to the coming of Christ. The gospel accounts record the time of Christ on earth, and the apostles after their ascension point back to Christ and towards the second coming. It's all about Christ, isn't it? The Messiah is coming, he is here, he is coming again. And that is a fact, a truth that cannot be ignored. Christ is, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, think about this for a moment, we think about since Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, we have to consider what does this mean to us? What does this mean to you and I? Jesus changed the path for man, didn't he? When Christ came to the earth and died on the cross, everything changed. Mankind could obey the gospel and their sins could be remitted in the blood of Christ. Acts 2.38, right? They could be added to the body of Christ. As we find there following Acts chapter 2, the church being established, they would now be added to the body of Christ, which is the church. See, Christ changed everything. Without such an act for mankind, there would be no hope. God made it possible for man through Christ to avoid hell. Think about this for a moment. Christ, as he said before, died, and by him dying, it it changes mankind by our obedience to the gospel. It changes us from the inside out. Think about this for a second. Every time we try to do something good for someone who's not very kind to us, who did Christ die for? Who did he die for? For those who hated him, with a fiery vengeance, they hated him, right? He died for the phony Pharisees. That's what I call them, because they're the biggest frauds you could possibly find in the New Testament. God's trying to be, be religious and righteous, and they're the biggest phonies of all, in my opinion. The Sadducees, who didn't even believe in the resurrection, were the jealous Jews who hated him more than we could possibly imagine. For the sorry scribes he tagged along so many times when they attacked Christ. He died for all of them. But you know, he also died for the irritation known as Israel. The Old Testament, boy, we learned a lot about Israel, don't we? But here's the real point. Who is spiritual to Israel today? It's the church, isn't it? We don't be that irritation, do we? We want any irritation in that sense to stop. I say Israel was an irritation because they they didn't know they wouldn't be faithful one day to the next at the time. You know, more importantly than all this, and something we wanted to make sure we realize is that without a doubt, he also died for the faithful few. The faithful few. Unlike popular opinion, not everyone gets to go to heaven. You realize that? Not everybody gets to go. We wish that was the case, don't you? 
It's not. We must realize, as you think about what all this means for us today, is that we must choose Christ and not man. You know, too often, man has more loyalty to well-known men than we do to God, His Son, and His Word, don't we? You ever hear someone say, well, brother so-and-so said this, brother so-and-so said that, who cares? If they're right, great. If they're wrong, why do we, do we want to follow them just because that person said it? It doesn't matter how many books they've written, how many videos they have done. If they're wrong, according to the scriptures, then don't follow what they're doing. We have too many men who love, love others more than they love God and the truth. We must love Christ and the truth enough that to realize that we will not allow this to happen. Think about this for a moment. If we, if truth causes waves, and shouldn't we be brave enough to cause a hurricane? You know, I heard people say before, we don't want to, you know, we really don't want to get all upset about this. Then why are we here? I mean, either sin matters and it's important or it's not. Either going to heaven is that important or it's not. Because if it's not that important, we can go home. But it is important, or it should be. Brethren, we shouldn't complain about the truth. We must instead bring our umbrellas to weather the storm and sit alongside those who stand for truth. You know, elders and deacons are not the other ones who should stand alongside preachers who preach the truth. The membership should as well. Sometimes we give elders and preachers the blame for hard times. Sometimes, friends, the membership, which includes everyone, is a reason for the hard time. If we don't like the truth, the problem is not with God and His Word. The problem is with us. You know, Christ is the Son of God. We see it throughout Scriptures, but what it comes down to us today is, what are we going to do with that knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The diamond cross for our sins. What are we going to do with that knowledge? Are we going to act upon it? You know, sometimes sometimes preachers, you know, it's hard to make waves when standing for the truth if you're not at your home congregation. There are 52 weeks in a year. And don't misunderstand me. I have no problem with lectureships and gospel meetings. There are some brethren who I've talked to who they're gone 20% of the year. That's just 10 weeks. 20%. And then we're surprised when we come home and a painful flame has rose up. Friends, I have no problem with us going to gospel meetings, being part of lectureships such as this one. But sometimes we realize we need to stay home and put out a fire. Because if there's no point in going out preaching and talking about how we, we love the truth and we should defend it and how we should attack false doctrine if we're not at home to do it. You know, some preachers really think they are a gift to the congregation. Can you be a gift if you're not even present? It's hard thing to think about sometimes, isn't it? I love lectureships. I love gospel meetings. But sometimes I hear people talk about how much they're gone and how much they're bragging about it. And I think, well, when are you ever home? To your home congregation. When we come home and we see things we need to address that could have been dealt with and stopped if we were actually there in our home congregation. Who is Jesus? 
Well, he had no formal training, John 7, verse 15, right? He had never studied. He had no material wealth, Luke chapter 9. And also, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 tells us how he says here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty, uh, that you through his poverty might become rich. And Christ gave up everything to come to this earth for you and for me. When's the last time he sacrificed something of any significance for someone else? When's the last time you get up a Saturday to help someone else? Some of you may do things all the time. I'm not talking about you to make you feel bad, but there are some times those in congregations and those who may be listening who aren't doing anything at all. Instead, there's that painful flame that likes to rise up when the preacher is gone, when the elder is sick, or when the elders are sick, right? So we have to realize if we're going to be those who are going to take advantage of what Christ has done for us, we have to love the truth. Christ had no formal training. He was not wealthy. But yet, through his teachings, he turned the world upside down, didn't he? You look at Acts 17 and verse 6. He says that when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. How they do it? By preaching the truth. You know, I've been preaching as long as probably most of the men in this room. But there's one thing we learn very quickly as preachers is that truth isn't always well received, is it? Those moving sermons that men talk about, those are real. Those are a very real thing. Do you know in all reality they shouldn't even exist? The only moving that should be happening happening is the moving of that hateful or hateful person, hateful group of people. Moving of them closer to God. That's what should be happening, shouldn't it? By their repentance, by their confession. They should be the ones to be moving closer to God because moving a talking preacher move away, no, that doesn't solve anything. God's word still says what it does. You can fire every preacher you have every six months if you want, but the truth of God's word still still stands. You can get angry at every elder you want, the truth still stands. You can go from one congregation to the next, and the truth should still stand. As the evidence reveals, Christ was and is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He sacrificed himself as a ransom for man, Matthew 20 and verse 28. Christ says here, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, meaning he is the giving payment on our behalf for something we cannot pay for ourselves. Because the price of sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. You sin. You deserve to die spiritually. People don't like to hear that anymore. No, people like to hear, well, you know, if you're walking in the light, though the grace of God will forgive you, if you repent, right? We've kind of omitted that part a lot here recently. Confess, repent. That has been found throughout the Bible, isn't it? We forget the wages of sin is literally you will die in your sins and go to eternal hell if you don't take care of it. We still have people today who don't like that. You think, well, you know, I don't really agree with that. You don't disagree with me, you disagree with the Bible. You disagree with me too, but you disagree with the Bible, more importantly. Jesus changes every human being who obeys him. Put that in your mind. Who obeys him? 
You think about this for a moment. You look at, I'm getting hot here, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. What does that verse talk about? He is the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey him. See, sometimes we, maybe intentionally, sometimes maybe unintentionally, leave off that last little part. Obey. Because obedience for some people today, we don't like to hear that, do we? Have to obey, have to submit. Well, if you want to go to heaven, you do. If you want to obey God, if you want to follow his word, you you have to submit to God and to his word. And that's been the case from the beginning of time. Adam and Eve learned that lesson the hard way, right? I told you not to touch that tree. What happened? Get out of the garden. Just summarize briefly, right? And life is going to get much, much harder. Because they did not submit themselves to God. Uh, Hebrews 5 verse 9, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, meaning salvation rests in Christ. That's why it's so important to realize that Christ, Jesus is the Christ. They did walk the earth. They did fulfill all prophecies concerning him. He died and rose again because even the grave can't stop Christ. We think about this idea of showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Friends, that should be a cakewalk because the evidence is higher than the highest mountain. The problem is not with God and his word and the problem is us accepting it and applying it to our own lives. Let's make sure we do just that. 